Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, which features the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. In today's globally connected online and mobile world, social media platforms are fast becoming the dominant means of communication and it is revolutionising the way businesses communicate with their customers, individuals communicate with each other and how governments communicate with citizens. Many popular social media platforms, such as Facebook and Twitter, allow for instant, real-time multi-way communication, collecting and analysing data from multiple online sources by leveraging sophisticated computing technologies can produce actionable insights beneficial to businesses, communities and governments. Assistant Professor Shim Kyung Jin from SMU's School of Information Systems is an expert in social analytics. In this podcast, she shares with us the benefits of social media analyses and some of her research in social analytics. Professor, can you share with us what is social analytics? First of all, the term analytics already tells you that it has to do with some data and data analysis. The social part of social analytics makes this slightly more specific in that it has to do with data, but a specific type of data, such as social interactions, social conversations, who follows whom in Twitter, Facebook, and who's spreading rumors in a social network of people. Simply put, it's a study of people, consumers that buy stuff and post their reviews so that other potential buyers can be warned or informed before making a purchasing decision. It's also a study of how information flows in a social network of people and who's at the center of communication, who's being or creating that tipping point, a point at which information starts spreading really fast. We call these individuals influencers. And of course, there's a whole array of software programs and libraries and packages that allow you to collect, aggregate, and analyze data and to visualize information. So social analytics encompasses all of these things. Social analytics by nature is a highly interdisciplinary area. On one end of the spectrum, there's this field of computer science, data mining, machine learning, where we focus on data crawling, scraping, cleaning the data, and integrating data from different platforms, and analyzing and visualizing it using software programs, and doing this all in a very large scale and in a real-time manner. On the other side of the spectrum are other disciplines like social sciences, communication studies, psychology, marketing, and so on. Here, we try to answer questions such as, What motivates people to form or break a relationship? What are some of the communication patterns that make a community of people stick together for a long time? And so on. So these other fields of study provide more context around what we analyze in computer science, and more importantly, why. Why we are analyzing what we are analyzing. Give us an idea of the ways research in social analytics can benefit individuals. Of the many examples of how social analytics has changed the way we live, one prominent example that I often talk about when people ask me this particular question is, just because it's everywhere, is websites like Yelp and TripAdvisor or social review sharing platforms. Most everyone travels today and all of us are super busy and the limited few days we're going overseas, we want to make sure that everything is perfect from hotels to restaurants to outdoor activities. Here, we're talking about going to a place we've never been to, and we don't know anyone there. Some 20 years ago, you'd probably turn to your family members or friends or friends of friends that have been there, and you hope that they'll share some good information. Look at how we're doing this information gathering today. Go to any hotel search website, 
next to each hotel, you'll probably find not just a star rating, but reviews that are written by visitors of that hotel, actual people that have visited that particular hotel. Was it clean? Were the staff members friendly? Was it loud? Was the swimming pool well-maintained? Found any bed bugs? Do the staff members speak English? Was it worth the money? So much information is already available online. And as you know, what's amazing about this is that we're not talking about a few people in our friend circle. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of others that we've never met in our lives, but offering information that's useful to us. So how can individuals make use of this information? Bed bugs found in a hotel, ends found, and hotel staff didn't do anything about it? Well, you stay away from this hotel and go look for another hotel. In a similar way, when choosing the next restaurant to take your spouse out on a date, you can go find a lot of reviews on websites like Yelp or Hungry Go Where. It doesn't have to be hotels or restaurants, but electronics, telco services, piano tuning services, movers, tutors, and so on and so forth. There's just so much social conversation online today. We as individuals can do our own research for better and informed decision making, all for free. What about businesses and governments? Likewise, for businesses, suppose that you're trying to open up a restaurant. You probably have a good idea of who are your competitors and where they're located in Singapore or globally. But do you know how popular or well-received they are? If you see a long queue outside your competitor restaurant, that's a good gauge of how popular they are. But what about your competitor restaurants? What aspects of the competitor restaurant that are so attractive to so many people? What aspects cater to people so well? For this, again, you can simply go to restaurant review sites like Yelp or Hungry Go Where or TripAdvisor for more detailed information. The reviews will reveal what aspects of the restaurant that won or lost people's hearts. And this piece of information will be crucial to you as you try to open up a restaurant. As for government, social listening is important. We saw a lot of chatters online about Singapore general election in September. There was just a lot of buzz being created online. In my social analytics class in the School of Information Systems, we had our students crawl social conversations from Twitter and other platforms such as Instagram about the election. We can not only track who says what about general election and different parties, in some cases, we can track the exact location of the user that made a particular post. On the voting day itself, from the morning hours when the voting started until 1 a.m., 2 a.m., after the vote count was done, the chatter in this massive online space went on. Using social analytics, governments can listen to what their citizens are saying, what are the topics of concern or interest, and what is the overall sentiment? Is it positive or negative? Professor, tell us about some of the social analytics research which you have undertaken or are currently conducting. We've seen different paradigm shifts in the technology world. The introduction of the internet, personal computers, mobile devices, social networking sites, and so on. And we've seen plenty examples of how these different technologies are changing the way we live and do things. One of the areas and sort of positive examples of technologies revolutionizing the way we live is education. My most recent research work in social analytics is a one year plus long collaboration with NIE. National Institute of Education in Singapore. Let me share with you a broader sort of description of what this research is about. Imagine a classroom of students. We're not talking about a typical classroom in a physical building. We're talking about a virtual classroom where teachers sign on to a website from their workplaces and students also sign on from their homes or wherever they are at the moment. 
Students are grouped together into small groups of four to five people, and each group is given a problem-solving task that requires them to brainstorm in an online chat room. At any given time point, there's a dozen or more chats going on at the same time. Now, if this were a physical classroom, a teacher, one teacher would have to go around and listen to what each group is discussing one by one. Unless you can copy and paste the teacher and have multiple copies of her, it's impossible for the teacher to tend to all groups at the same time. So when two or more groups are having problems moving forward with their problem-solving task and need their teachers to intervene, unfortunately, some groups will have to wait or just go on without getting proper help. But in a virtual classroom, we can build and train a computer program that can assist student groups. These programs sort of act like the teacher, except that they're not human, but they can be trained to behave like the teacher and assist students like the teacher. They can detect any problems students may be having early on by doing social listening. The programs will listen to social conversations as they happen as students type and discuss problems in online chat. They can look for certain words or phrases that indicate problems, such as students are stuck, they do not understand the problem, or they're not agreeing with one another and they start arguing and in a very unproductive way. Or they're going on into a completely wrong direction with their problem-solving task. The way our software programs do all these things is that they're built to understand human language. In our research, we started out with a generic American or British-style uh, English corpus. We went on to enhance it by adding local languages, such as Singlish, slang words, acronyms, and emoticons. We used Python language and its NLTK package as the basis. And we went on to write our own custom package for additional functions, like checking for Singlish slang words and so on. We've just finished phase one of our research. The value added here from education perspective is that we've automated the process of early detection of possible problems in students' problem solving and doing this in a highly scalable manner. This allows educational institutions to delegate certain tasks that teachers would normally do to computer programs. My other more recent ongoing research is with Nielsen Company. I'm unable to share too much details at this point, but in a nutshell, imagine that we can listen to a lot of social conversations across many different platforms, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and a whole wide array of blogs and websites, including news sites, and be able to predict future behavior, such as the outcome of a newly released movie or TV show, or consumer buying behavior, not just overall globally, but imagine that we can do this sort of prediction in a more granular context like Singapore, amongst male population, among young people between 25 and 35 years of age. Imagine that we can do this fairly accurately using computer programs, using machine learning algorithms. Companies that have this sort of information early on will be able to better design their marketing campaigns by focusing on specific demographic segments, perhaps. And not just that, imagine that we can get to a point where we can identify social influencers, individuals in a social network that are highly followed by and trusted by other people. Movie production companies can leverage the social influencers to spread good news or information about their upcoming movies or shows. So without going into too much specifics, the general idea behind the second project with Nielsen Company is that we can do social listening to better understand consumption behaviors. And we can predict future behavior by looking at past chatters captured in social media. 
As social media data are mined without the consent and knowledge of the users, how do you handle the issue of privacy? I can only provide a general answer, as specifics can vary from website to website and from country to country. I must say that my response to this particular question in this podcast is not a legal advice, and it is not intended as a legal advice. First thing first, if you post something on the web, it makes that something public. It's public information, and it can turn up in someone's Google search. Anyone can view it. If someone sees your content and prints it or circulates it, emails to his friends or whatnot, well, you've just made your content public, so you can't really do much about it, unless you've stated copyright in your content, such as photos. You don't want someone to take your photos and post them as if their own. You can add copyright statement or add watermark to your photos. Note that copyright is valid in all countries that abide by the Berne Convention. Currently, there are 168 countries that are included here, including Singapore, starting 1998. Now, if you post something behind some type of protection, for instance, using your user authentication, if you post something on a social networking site like Facebook after you log in with your own username and password, the owner of the social networking site may impose conditions and restrictions on the use of the data that you post. This is a contract between you as a user and the owner or provider of the social networking site. The social networking site owner may use the data you post in a certain way. Other users, people that follow you in Facebook or whatnot, they can use the data you post in a certain way. You must refer to the social networking site's TOS or Terms of Use for more details. There's a completely legal way to share content, like in Facebook, you can click on share so that when the content appears in your feed, people following you can see that this message originates from someone else. In Twitter, sometimes we see people take another person's tweet. Instead of retweeting it, giving the original poster the due credit, they'll just create a new tweet with the same content. It's like stealing someone's quote. Totally plagiarism, right? But it seems that you cannot really copyright your tweets because of the 140 character limit is too short and other reasons. Now, there's a difference between a person visiting a web page and reading the content and a computer program called Crawler visiting the web page and grabbing the content. There's what's called the Robots Exclusion Protocol, which basically says that crawlers should not grab contents from any website that uses Robots Exclusion Protocol. Now, when it comes to social media or social networking sites, some of the websites provide public API. API stands for Application Programming Interface. Simply put, it tells you how to extract what data from a particular social media site. APIs will restrict your data access, ensuring that you, as a program, are able to access only certain types of data. Again, you'd have to refer to the terms of use for whatever API you use for particular sort of restrictions and regulations. So largely, there are two things. As a user posting some content onto a website, you need to understand who can access the content, and how your content can be used by the website provider and by other users on the website. This can be found in terms of use. Secondly, as a user of the website, wanting to access other data, other users' data, either by web crawling or through API, you need to refer to the terms of use again. If you're crawling data from other websites for research purposes, you need to make sure that you've gone through the IRB training as required by your respective institution. And you can only publish only aggregated information. You cannot publish 
personally identifiable information. You'd have to work closely with your institution, your school's IRB office on this. Is your research is dealing with human subjects? All this data we're crawling from the web, social conversations, social networks, and so on, are about people, human subjects. So please take a note of this as you're embarking on a research using social media data. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you.